the euphoria. I don't call it that. I just call it fire because it's it's something I feel right in the middle of my chest. And like I've done a handful of drugs and alcohol. There's no drink or drug that matches what mania feels like. Being manic, just it's just fire in your chest and it's like you're bulletproof. Like I can literally do anything and like I don't I don't think about consequences of my actions. Definitely don't think about anybody else. There is one thing though, is like I don't intentionally do anything to harm others, but my own well-being is like not, I don't give a crap. Welcome back to the Nurse Tori Selfie Show, where I'm on a mission to make healthcare hip one selfie at a time. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tori Meskin, aka at Nurse Tori. I am the founder of the Selfie Podcast, a platform dedicated to fascinating people in the healthcare space. From medical field to entrepreneurs, brands, businesses, this is a platform designed to share career journeys, life tips, resource tricks, and really getting to know the person behind the journey. This is something I've been really excited to talk about and a moment that I really wanted to cherish and a plat- I wanted to talk about this topic on this platform so we could really dive deeper into it. Uh, So for those of you who don't know me and you're new to this show, my name is Tori Meskin. I am nurse, NP student, blogger, and now the founder of the Selfie Podcast. Sitting here with me today is my younger brother, Vince. Hello. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming. And uh, I do call him Chenzo. His name is actually Vincent, but I don't know for whatever reason Chenzo developed. She can call me Vincent. You can call me Vince. Chenzo. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. I don't know. All the things. So although I've alluded to this uh, several times via Instagram, I have talked about this a little bit. Um, I want to dive into mental health um, and something that our family has faced um, over the past, I'd say more um, tangibly, like over the past five years. Um, I've alluded a little bit to this, but we have not talked about it head on and so I thought this would be a really awesome opportunity to not only talk about it but maybe help myth bust educate provide resources kind of all the things let's do it um so let's talk a little bit about this specific story um what I'm alluding to is my brother's diagnosis of being bipolar all right so let's hop right in so Let's go back to and maybe introduce everyone who's here who doesn't know you to little Vince. What was growing up like for you? Where did we grow up? Let's tell people a little bit about you and your background. We grew up in Fresno, right in the middle of San Joaquin Valley. Um, Fres, yes. Fres, yes. Love that place. <laughs> everyone uh, in the family, we had a good family, like growing up. Like me and my sister, we lived out in the country, so we were like best friends and like. We'd run, run away from home and, like, go to the corner of the property. Yeah. And, like, picnic or something for a couple hours. So, we are <laughs> 13 months apart. I'm older. Um, and we grew up very, very close together. I would say, like, probably more, like, as siblings, we got along very, very well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, our relationship, I would say, like, was more on a best friend level. High school, we had all the same friends. Mm-hmm. We went to all the same parties together. Yeah. The rule was if we <laughs> if we wanted to go past curfew, as long as we were together, it was okay. Yeah. And if I wanted to go anywhere, 
it was okay as long as I was with Victoria. <laughs> so we got we got kind of like away with a lot of things because we were together. So yeah. it actually kind of worked out a good really well. Yeah. There was that time though when, you know, like girls grow up and they're like super unhappy with their moms and vice versa. And me and her weren't all that like friendly, but then like she grew out of that stage. And But yeah, it was pretty much like halfway through high school. We'd just been like best friends since and always, always hanging out. Yeah, I would agree with that. <clears throat> um... So moving into college, so growing up, great, happy, loved it. Pretty much, it was good. It was good. We were raised happy, good, mm-hmm. and then college came. Um, let's talk a little bit, maybe more about your college days. Um, you went to Fresno State University. Fresno State. I went to Fresno State right out of high school, and like, just had way too much fun, and I ended up graduating. Um, after seven and a half years but i have two degrees so there's that so just kind of like a sum up you um you are diagnosed bipolar he has two degrees you're very functioning now but i want to talk a little bit about um the actual disease as a process and a diagnosis because i think the whole reason maybe i'm looping in the college days is because we're going to talk a little bit of the diagnosis and the things that were going on I think we didn't realize what was going on because you were in your college days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got away with a lot because... <laughs> Way too much. All I had to do was get bees and go to work. Um, and my parents didn't ask you know, very many questions past that. I got in a lot of trouble. But it was like hard to, as a parent to put me in trouble because like I always worked and I always got bees. Yeah. Um, and that was like You were my, smart, but... That was literally my ticket out of jail. I mean, because I've been there a couple times, like just like overnight, like nothing. Like, no. We're gonna go into that. But um, okay. yeah, that was that was the thing. I just so, knew I could get out. <laughs> the whole diagnosis of bipolar. So I want to give you guys the actual definition. This is from the Mayo Clinic. Um, bipolar disorder is formally. It's also formally called manic depression, and it's a mental health condition that causes extreme mood swings that include emotional highs, so mania, or even hypomania and also lows depression. There are several types of bipolar um, in the disorder, but primarily we're gonna focus on your diagnosis, which is bipolar one. There's also bipolar two and other types, but we're gonna focus on that. Um, And I just wanna give you guys a couple quick facts before we dive into it. The average age of onset is usually 25, which was right on with when you got diagnosed. Right on, Um, was 25. It does also occur in teens. Um, in, in addition to that, I would say about 2.8% of U.S. adults experiencing bipolar disorder each year. That's about 10 million. I don't know. There was something that I saw, like 10 million people are diagnosed with it, um, every year. It's, 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 it's common, but not that common. Um, and about 83% of cases are classified as severe. Um, so this is all information I got from Mayo Clinic, um, but we learned a lot of things sort of as a family as like things happened. So let's talk a little bit about your symptoms. So I took the liberty of printing out for us a list of what um, symptoms, signs and symptoms or things that people feel when they are manic, depressive or things like that. So Vincent, let's jump into it. Let's go through your list. Yeah, I mean, this this is a pretty long list, but I just took the liberty to circle all the ones that apply. There's like 25 of them, but 
um, you know, increased activity and energy, exaggerated self of well-being and self-confidence. That was probably the most significant for me because that just fed into the energy um, and like didn't need sleep. Sleep was boring. I don't know. I just went uh, and yeah, the the exaggerated self-being, like who, who I thought I could be, who I thought I was, I was in it. And like that was that was the reality, and it was not it was not what it looked like to the world. But I had my own little world, and I was super stoked to be there. You were very um, and what it, let's translate that to people who don't know. Like th- he would be on this, he had this like image of a super person of who he was, mm-hmm. and he was like taking over the world, like mm-hmm. in yeah, every del- way. Delusions of grandeur um, is in the. the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's something that alcoholics are um, very common in, in alcoholics and drug addicts. But that was that was where I was well before I accepted sobriety. But yeah, the delusions of grandeur were so real and there was no telling me otherwise. There's no reasoning with somebody um, that's manic. Yes. That's, there's just, no, you can't talk to them. I think the big difference when you're talking mania is you know there's a lot of things in this list like fast talking racing thoughts um elevated self-esteem feelings of grandiose um i feel like a lot of people can have those feelings but the difference is is you have something to turn it off like mentally you know when you have these impulses um a lot of people it's high sex drive um, goal-oriented activities increased agitation um, all of these things. The difference is, is you can literally turn it off. But yeah. you, there was no off button. I made, I made button. the energy bunny, the energizer bunny, whatever that commercial is. I made him look tired. Like there was just no slowing me down. Um, and yeah, it took my mom not telling me because there was no telling me what to do. She asked me, um, very like, very sincerely, like, can you please go to Kaiser and talk to a psychiatrist? Because nobody could tell me what to do. And that was the last thing you know like before they just knew i'd probably end up getting arrested or something it's just like please go to kaiser like it's gonna take like less than an hour that was on the tail end of it we'll get there yeah so but i want to so going into that you know not having the off button i think was the whole thing so do you think that there were always signs that you were bipolar or like you know being younger and things like that when do you feel like looking back that you felt that or that you knew that something was off? Uh, there, yeah, I mean, like, we can start. Like, I, I had to go through two kindergartens. <laughs> Wasn't quite ready in kindergarten. But uh, bipolar is something that, like, you grow into. Like, people will grow into it. And that's why 25 is when they usually diagnose it. So, yeah, there's signs when they're younger. Uh, yeah, like, nap time wasn't a thing. You couldn't, like, I'd gotten in trouble in kindergarten for not napping. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like daylight. You want me to sleep right now? And um, I think now people would classify that as early signs of ADHD, which is annoying because I do feel like we have to put a label on everything. But I think that that was something that you definitely, yeah. <laughs> ADHD is a real thing, people, because 100% you are everything that is ADHD, like hyperactivity disorder for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's not even a disorder. It's just who you are. Yeah. I think we've always embraced that. Yeah, I mean, I like it. I didn't know, you know, until I was 25, it wasn't official. I thought, honestly, it was normal. My mom told me, just look at all the other boys in the classroom. 
you can do that. You are normal. That's normal. And I was like, okay. So literally like everything through my life, I was like, no, this is normal. Everybody has these racing thoughts constantly. Like what I never understood was when you ask somebody, Hey, what are you thinking about? And they're like, Oh, nothing, you know? And like, I literally did not understand how you can be thinking about nothing. That literally has never been a thing. I cannot think about nothing. So yeah, all the way back, um, couldn't, didn't understand that. And then, you know, just getting in the prince, all the principals knew me at all my schools. You know, I wasn't like, I was always good, good school. I was scared of my dad. Like, let's be honest. My dad had the fear instilled, like, get your grades. You're going to school. But like everything I could do within those boundaries, like I did. <laughs> to yeah. The full he extreme. was always in trouble. And I think that that was just, you know, prior to the whole actual bipolar manic episodes, which we will go into what your manic episodes look like. You were always, first of all, he's always a charmer. This guy is like number one charmer. And I think you come by that honestly because of our, our dad, but everyone loved you, but you were always kind of like the bad kid. Yeah. Like the I nice kid, but the bad kid. <laughs> yeah. I was good at sports, but I never got along with jocks. I was, I'd start, but I'd, I'd hang out with like the kids that smoke pot and like went to like good Charlotte concerts and you found glory <laughs> like that. That was my get down. Those were my buddies, but yeah. like I could keep up and be athletic but I just didn't get along with those kind of people I think you always had this very innate drive like there was this little fire in you which is why he gravitated more I mean you did do football but you gravitated to wrestling wrestling was definitely good for you because that was a uh, a really good outlet I think mm-hmm. yeah that was more fun that was um, six minutes of non-stop that was that was better <laughs> so those are younger years let's go maybe into when you were actually diagnosed um, bipolar. So before we dump dive into that, I want to kind of touch on it. So the causes of um, the the bipolar disease is it's it's sort of known, sort of not. So one factor being genetics, one factor being stress, and one factor being brain um, structure and function. And what I mean by that is that's diving more into dopamine, epinephrine, why physically the diagnosis of bipolar happens and we've learned a lot about this disease as a family um so there's essentially when you start thinking about the structure of the brain and the neurons that are going on essentially when you're bipolar you have this surge of constant dopamine running around in your brain Mm -hmm. and you feel like this euphoric person you feel like you i mean it's interesting because we listened to a thing on Kanye West talked about it because he's also diagnosed by bipolar and probably actually ironically why he's so successful is because of his disorder and his disease. Mm-hmm. But he talks about and you talk about it too, where it's this euphoric feeling. And I want to go through your diagnosis prior because he had several rests. You had several DUIs. And I want to jump into that because there's a lot of things that kind of led up to it before we really figured out what was going on. Yeah, I I, I need to watch what Kanye West has to say because I know he's been diagnosed. But um, the euphoria, I don't call it that. I just call it fire because it's it's something I feel right in the middle of my chest. And like I've done a handful of drugs and alcohol. There's no drink or drug that matches what mania feels like. Being manic, just it's just fire in your chest and it's like you're bulletproof. Like I could literally do anything and like, I don't, I don't think about consequences of my actions. Definitely don't think about anybody else. There is one thing though. I was like, I don't intentionally do anything to harm others, but my own well being is like not, I don't give a crap. So 
that that fire is something that is so pleasurable. Um, you never want to come off it. And that, that's why when, when, you know, without, without meds or anything like that to like physically change your brain and get that dopamine out of your head. Um, it's like, uh, it, when you're manic, one, one psychiatrist I talked to, it, it's a flood of dopamine and it shuts off the more advanced part of your brain from the, you know, primal part of your brain and the primal part of your brain has functions but they're not as capable as like what we've evolved you know like this whole podcasting thing is like the primal part of your brain ain't doing that so when you're manic it shuts off the new part of the brain that everyone today is very familiar with and and getting getting on um, in society as it sees it so when you're manic like you're not thinking like that you're in the primal state of surviving and like having fun and it's just so pleasurable there's nothing better that i've ever felt or experienced than being manic something that um when we were going through as a family and learning about it you know we were kind of looking back and one of the psychiatrists was explaining that you know for example a lot of these huge leaders in our life or in you know history most likely had some form of this bipolar like um, Napoleon you know we're talking people that have had huge impacts on history but how is he able to do these things you know you kind of look back and you're like maybe these people also you know in those primal moments they may have actually had a touch of bipolar or something mm-hmm. to that effect yeah no and there's there's a lot of history that backs that statement up in that these leaders would just in some simple form just go and conquer a country and like be manic and they'd get it done and then they'd go into the depressive state for however long they needed to you know because that essentially would balance them out but it was like they'd conquer own a new country and like nobody would see them because they'd be recovering and depressed and literally like couldn't get out of bed yeah um so yeah that is that is a thing so and also i mean as far as let's talk about the sleep factor because there were um a lot of times when you literally physically would not sleep yeah no sleep wasn't a thing and before i got diagnosed i didn't really give that enough thought because like my drinking in college like the five years that led up to um this diagnosis was it was like just get your grades get to work and like party so like sleep, I never realized that it wasn't a thing. Cause like if you could drink and smoke pot eight days a week, I was doing it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's like I wasn't sleeping. I was like passing out or whatever, and then the alarm would go off and I'd come too. So I was like, yeah, I slept last night. It's like no, I passed out last night and the alarm woke me up. So sleep was never easy to come by. And I'd like whenever I'd like um, spend the night at a girlfriend's or something like that. You know, I, I was I was aware of my drinking, so I could drink less. But it was always me lying there, like listening to her fall asleep, and then like I'd fall asleep eventually, I'm sure at some point. But that was, that was the only thing that I'd realized that sleep wasn't easy to come by because I was always drinking. So yeah, it, and I think it was, wasn't really a problem from a family perspective outside, like looking in. Um, I feel like you know you were always. We always drank. Like, that's the thing is like, you're in college, we were in high school, we drank. Like, yeah, and I don't think we ever thought twice that, um, where, what was happening to him when it was happening. We never really, we didn't realize what was happening because it was like you were doing normal things that college people do. 
yeah i had a good i had a good act to make sure that i could enjoy it because if we're gonna talk about the the manic i mean it was literally seven weeks that i went non-stop um didn't sleep if i did sleep it was like an hour and a half and like i knew enough i'd taken enough classes like rem take you know, an hour and a half cycle through rem sleep or three hour cycle gets you two and so like that's what i would do like every other day never miss a party never miss work always show up to class and then do whatever i wanted and i did that for seven weeks and like i wasn't tired and it was crazy because like when someone if someone asks you what's the happiest time you've ever felt like what's what's the happiest you've ever been it's like i can go to that seven weeks and say 100 percent. and like i was manic for seven weeks i blew up a relationship um but i you know everything else was fine and like i did not care about anything it was, it was just it was the most peaceful i have ever felt but apparently it didn't look like that <laughs> yeah so from um an outsider's perspective of that time frame um i can tell you that the girl he was dating at the time did call me and my mom and she said what she told us was she felt like he was you were acting odd or different like she was very specific about it and she said he's not sleeping and I kind of ignored that because I was like what do you mean he's not sleeping like you're in college like you're partying like whatever and she was like no like he's not sleeping and to be honest um to this day I really feel awful because I sort of wrote her off like I didn't I didn't take it seriously and she was kind of saying he's just acting weird he's acting erratic he's kind of talking about things that don't make sense He's not focused in school. Like, he's just kind of... She would talk about these tangents that he would go on, um, you know, about talking about the future and just being sort of odd and weird. And that was kind of the first time someone had approached us as a family member and said something is off with Vince. And I sort of wrote it off as, well, you're just having an issue with your girlfriend. Yeah. No, there there was issues, but it was all underlying with, with what she was seeing and then how I was seeing what I was doing, which was there was no problem. Um, I did recognize that, that there was something different, and she did insist that she wanted to help me through it, and I didn't need help. I was going to figure it out, but that wasn't a good answer for her, and I remember I was like, all right, we're going to do it your way. And like that was day one. And then by day 14, um, we had, she met me at work and um, it was really peaceful when she came into my office and sat down and I was like, okay, so we'll go over here and eat lunch. And it was like really nice. And like, I'm like two, two weeks into this, like what, what I consider my manic phase. And I'd like seen her for like 20 minutes. And then I don't know how it unfolded but like less than five minutes less than two minutes i don't even know what it was we went from like it was really peaceful to me just enjoying the fire again and like that was the end of the relationship it was like a two-minute conversation and like i like i like the fire i like being aggressive and i knew if i looked at her what that would feel like so i just kept looking at the table and i kept my hands in full view i wasn't going to get up i wasn't going to look at her but she was crying and I didn't watch her leave because like I just couldn't make eye contact as she was like as this relationship was ending and she left and I was like all right let's go back to work 
and that was that was the end of that and then another like i don't know three months two and a half months whatever it was two months of just pure bliss in my head what i thought it was it was fantastic didn't care about the relationship made it to my internship that semester i carried 16 units and like i'm a b student because i have to be but that semester not sleeping never missing a party drinking not smoking pot because i have to pass my drug test um i got four a's and a b and like that's like that was cool all right so I want to fast forward to some other bigger moments because that those moments I wasn't with you in college, but I was with you for quite a few moments later down the road. So Vincent graduated and um, moved down south. He got a job. And the big moments that I really am thinking about are you had some really big, you had how many DUIs? Three. Three DUIs. You were arrested how many times? Or in jail? Know. I've been in four three or four okay three four times four. in jail uh i mean these just kind of over the years and it kind of all succumbed in one moment in our life that i'm really thinking about when you're talking about um bipolar disease oftentimes there's a big trigger or there can be a big trigger okay so let's fast forward a little bit and talk about the life events that led you up to sort of where you are now so, uh, I got through college and um, I got a really good job working for a big general contractor on a project at LAX. And I had already been diagnosed, so I was taking all variations of medications that I really wasn't liking. So, beyond that, I'm very work driven, career driven. So, I'm at this job and I feel like I'm not doing all that well. Um, this and is the one you were on nights, right? No. Well, when I first started, I was on the day shift, and I felt like I wasn't doing very well. And management um, saw that, and you know, I even requested, like, let's talk about this, maybe a different project. I just need something different. And it had nothing to do with the project, had nothing to do with management, but they decided, um, we want to keep you on this project. We're just going to switch you to nights. And I said, I'm a night person anyways. And when they made that decision... Um, I went home after work that day and I had uh, essentially 36 hours before my first night shift. Just coming off day shift, so I was like, okay, so I'm not going to tell anybody, but I'm not taking meds anymore. And like, I was very, I was below level. I don't know. Some people would say, hey, you're doing well, but I didn't feel well. So going on to nights, I was like, okay, new, new super night shift. I'm not going to take any meds. We're going to see how this goes. And, um, it went really well. The In his head. In my head. But as far as work, it went really well. I started excelling. And the only like confirmation I had on that was I was in a position that I would not have been in by myself at nights um, managing this project um, solo. Like There would have been other managers if they didn't have confidence in what I was doing. So I knew I was doing well at work had nothing to do with what I do the second I walked out of LAX because um, I was drinking a lot. I started smoking pot again uh, and I was starting starting on my climb, starting to get that fire back. And that fire is really powerful. Like I can get a lot done, um, but when I let it go too far, and I say when I let it go too far, I, I didn't really have control, but the control I did was like, I'm done controlling it. I'm not taking meds. 
And that's where I lost control because I let the fire take me. And like I said, I was good at work. The 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 things I messed up on work is because You're a I, charmer. Yeah, I ended up um, losing a best friend, and I was I was I was manic, but I was con- I, I was hiding it like nobody nobody really knew what was going on there. Um, but- I want to touch on that a little bit. So this particular loss was very sudden. Um, and it affected and you kind of glossed over it, but I want to reiterate that this was like a brother to you Mm -hmm. and beyond a brother. Like, I feel like he is family. This was a super deep relationship. And so when this happened, I feel like it affected you much more than you let on for sure in every way. Yeah. There was, um, like, I'm not, I, I, of course, everybody can cry, but like I have to like be in, in a in a in a mode to cry. So I got the call um, from a from a from a buddy in Fresno that let me know they thought Joel had passed. They weren't sure yet, and I said, "Okay, just call me when call me when you know." And like I went back to work. I still had like another hour left on my night shift, and I. I was I wasn't even it was like it wasn't real I don't know I wasn't thinking about it and then um, called me back and confirmed that it was Joel and I didn't cry I didn't know what to do with that couldn't really do anything with that um, but what I could do was get drunk and then it was real and that was that was what I just wanted to do like after I'd get off work it's like I just want to feel. <laughs> like for Joel's loss and like I had to get drunk couldn't get high high when weed wouldn't do anything I had to get alcohol to like process those emotions that was the only way that I could do it because I was so high I was so manic at that point like nobody yet had known but that was the kind of catalyst to like I uh, all bets are off I didn't, I didn't I didn't know what to do with myself and losing him was uh <laughs> Yeah. I'll say too, like, I think this is like really therapeutic for a family. It's really good. Um, I will say as a family member of someone watching him go through this, uh, Jacob, my husband and I were somewhat newer at the time when kind of all this manifested. (laughs) And so my husband was introduced to my brother at probably one of the most manic times (laughs) of his life. Which was really tough because it was this um, cycle for my brother of mourning his best friend, not sleeping, drinking, and like an insane amount, which I didn't, we didn't know a lot of this at the time. You know, it it was hard to know how much I was drinking because like, I I remember we met for dinner and I did, I did feel myself like get super, super sloppy, but that's because I already drank like. I don't know, three tall cans of steel reserve before I met you guys there or before yeah. you picked me up. He would literally, and you know, I know this now, but like you would literally grab a tall boy and drive, you know, I mean, that was like a regular thing for you. Yeah. No, it was get off work and you grab two tall cans because you get back in the truck and you just slam the first one and then you drive with the second one to your destination. Yeah. That was normal. <laughs> and I remember distinctly during this time period, you were arrested. Um, I think you had gotten off work and you were 
super intoxicated. Yeah, that was the last time that I'd been arrested. So like, let's keep that going. But this was I, a good one. I do. I do. <laughs> this was a good arrest. I do remember that. Uh, I was riding my bike through the Sepulveda Tunnel under LAX. If you ever walked through there, I would not even let my kids walk through there. And I'd ride a skateboard. I'd ride a bike through there just to see if I could do it. It and was. It's, like, it's a very. If you've ever been there in LAX and you know this tunnel, it's <laughs> literally like it's a nightmare. Like it gives me anxiety going through that yeah. tunnel. It, it's like the handlebars of the bike um, would be scraping along the wall on one side. Like it's a death wish. And then there's side view mirrors, of course, right there. And it's like if you fall into the wall, that's fine. But if you lose your balance, like there's not sidewalk to gain your stability back. Like you just go into the lane. And it was like, I remember riding a, riding my skateboard and I was like, I can do this. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. But there was no, once I had it in my head, I was going to do it. And I got good at it. But man, it was like, I wouldn't let my kids walk through that. It's an, it's an emergency sidewalk to escape that tunnel in some catastrophe. But it's people don't walk there. It's not a thing. Um, but yeah, I was riding my bike and I get to the other side in El Segundo. And I get to an intersection. And I was like, I know Rock and Bruise is right down there. So if I go straight, I can go to Rock and Bruise and get shit face and cry. Or I'll make a right and go and try and sleep, which wasn't a thing. So that was an easy decision. I went to the Rock and Bruise. And I knew exactly what I drank because I didn't look at the beer list for the names. I'd look at the, the alcohol percentage and I ordered them that way. I got a picture of 11% IPA. I got a picture of 10% IPA and I got a picture of 9% IPA. And then I rode my bike back to my apartment. Um, and somebody honked at me. Granted, I was probably doing something wrong, riding my bike in the street or something, but that honk was like the ticket to like, just blow off steam. And, uh, I did, I, I, I prevented the, the guy from driving away. I never threatened him. I never hit the car. He didn't get out of the car, but I just wasn't letting him drive away. And uh, I saw him pick up his phone two minutes into this. And I was like, okay, so he's calling the cops. And at that moment, I was like, okay, I can disappear into the apartment. That's like right there. Or I can just keep getting it out because I know I'm not going to sleep right now. Because like no matter how drunk I get, like that, that fire takes over and sobers me up. So please show up you know, maybe five minutes after this ordeal. And I do remember how methodical this was because I had just gotten my third DUI and totaled my second vehicle two weeks prior. And I'm handcuffed in the back of this squad car getting lectured, uh, allowing the lecture by the police officers. And yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And they really enjoyed talking to me. And like, I was fine listening to it because I'm sitting there thinking like, how, what am I going to give my lawyer because if this one is another case, I have a pending DUI, like I need to do something. So every time there was a yes, sir, every time there was a yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, um, I would headbutt the plexiglass as hard as I could, just yes, ma'am, and then just as hard as I could, trying to break the plexiglass. Because I wanted them to, I wanted my lawyer to say this was a manic episode, and like I was out of my mind, and like I didn't want anything to stick. Um, and then they get done and they're about to close the door. And I'm like, I don't think that's enough. I don't think this is going to make it in the notes. So before they close the door and the lady officer's right there, I just start head bedding the, the plexiglass as hard as I can, as fast as I can for as long as it took until she said, sir, are you okay? Can I get you an ambulance? Do I need to get you an ambulance? 
And I sat back and I said, nope, I'm good. That'll make the notes. And like went to jail, went to the drunk tank. Nothing ever stuck. So like that was just me digging way too deep into something that maybe it didn't need to happen. But I just, that was my, that was my thought process. Three pictures of IPA to coherent conversations with police officers to like the lady officer telling me, do I need to get you an ambulance? And I was like, nope, I'm good. We can go to jail now. I feel like the... In his most manic moments, there was also a couple other moments um, that that followed this moment. And his manifestations of the bipolar disorder, you were very aggressive. I would say the the most thing that I I and I feel for families who go through this with other people, you were very aggressive to the point of, and you could tell when you looked into his eyes. It was like I was looking at a monster of yourself. And, you know, in the moment that he was just talking, like he's explaining what was going through his head. And I can tell you as a family member, you know, of course, I wasn't with you for this moment. But it is really scary when someone is in these manic moments and you can see it in their eyes that they are not there. It is like you you are literally talking to a shallow per not shallow like empty person at this you're talking to a completely different person um it was it's very scary and there was times where my family mom and I we weren't sure if we should call the police we weren't sure if we should 150 him we weren't sure if we should like we didn't know what to do because you were clearly aggressive. You were clearly dangerous to some degree, but you hadn't killed anybody yet. And you hadn't done anything to get for us to basically, like there was nothing we could do. And I, you know, this is maybe a message to all you families out there. Like, it's not just you. And, you know, until... We are very lucky. I feel very lucky because we're going to circle back and we're going to kind of talk about your treatment. But, you know, in those moments, it is so hard because your hands are tied as a family. Yeah. No, there was a lot of, uh, and when I say a lot of thought, like it didn't take very long to think, but when I would make decisions when I was manic, I needed to know and believe that this wasn't going to compromise what I was doing. My happiness, my fire. And that's what she just noted. She's like, they really couldn't do anything. No. And like, I knew that. There was nothing we could do. And that, that was, that was, we could, that was all I needed. The tangible things that I know we did do and my mom, and we're going to get to the treatment part, but, uh, we could take away the car, but then you went and bought one. Yeah. I told a truck, didn't have a license and, uh, he bought one. How did you even, I don't even know. He bought a Mustang. He bought a car somehow. Yeah. For like 1500 bucks. Yeah. Like cash. Like, like I had, I had just gotten fired and I had a bunch of money and I was like, well, I need a car. <laughs> so, so I bought a car. So he literally bought a car when we had taken away. <laughs> never registered in my name with the DMV, never insured it, didn't have a license. And I was like, I got a whip. <laughs> This is literally like... 1500 like, bucks cash. There were moments where we were like, okay, we're taking away the car. We're taking away the keys. We're taking away the cell phone. People who are manic literally will find the things. You are, you're going to find something to make it work, which you, I do love. I love that yeah, about you. But yeah. it just... It was crazy because there was literally nothing we could do. And yeah. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> um, so there was a moment... Um, 
that finally came to moment it came to pass where a judge basically told you you yeah. have two options all right before we get into that let's talk footwear I've been a clog nurse since the moment I set foot in the hospital setting. And I'm true to my brand through and through, which is why partnering with Sunita Footwear came so authentically. The Sunita designs and construction are truly second to none and have been in business for more than 110 years. Featuring only the highest quality leathers and handcrafted by cobblers in Europe, their clogs provide superior support and comfort to professionals in all types of industries. I actually like to rock mine not only in the hospital setting, but also at the barn. Yes, horse queens love to rock them too. Sunita clogs carry a heritage and commitment to authenticity that informs everything that they do. If you're interested in trying a pair for yourself, head on over to www.sunita.com and use code NURSETORY for 15% of your order. Does not apply to sale items, but you guys, head over, check them out. They're amazing. All right, back to the show. Yeah, no, the uh, how that unfolded was, yeah, with that car, um, I went and bought a bunch of tools at Home Depot, and I was going to move up north, um, figure it out with, with, with a buddy, uh, some kind of construction direction, I don't know. So I get up there, I've been up there for like, I don't know, three days, and my lawyer calls me, he's like, all right, so we're going to be here, here, and here, Ventura County, this, that, and the other, and I'm like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, bro. What are you doing? You, you you have court. You can't like leave. You, you're like going to jail. And I was like, oh, there's that. So then, you know, like less than a week, pack up all my stuff and go back to my parents' house. And it's like, all right, well, white flag, if that's a thing, I, I don't, I don't have a choice. Um, and then my lawyer um, was like, the only way to keep you out of jail is put you in treatment. And I was like, whatever, I'm over it. I'm over trying. My fire's out-ish. I'll do whatever you guys say. So checked into um, a structured sober living two days. No, I'm sorry. One week before my trial um, because we took it all the way to trial because my lawyer was really good. Um, get to the trial date. Thank God for good lawyers. Yeah. Get uh, get to the trial date. Uh, and it's like so cool. Like it was cool. Whatever. I was still like kind of on one. And you walk into this courtroom. And it was like, this is my courtroom. It was like. You know, there was nobody there because it was for me and nobody knows who I am. Um, but it was literally like D, DA, the judge, my lawyer, like, all right, you're going to jail. And my lawyer was like, yes, but uh, Vince is in treatment. And, you know, I guess treatment for a known alcoholic, drug addict with, you know, DUIs and abuse and this, that and the other is a topic of interest so my lawyer the DA and the judge went back there talked it out figured out you know is this a is this a just get out of jail or like what's he doing because to me it was just get out of jail but on what it was worth it wasn't it was like this dude is gonna try and um, stop doing this this isn't an apology it's like you want to stop doing what you've been doing so the judge was like okay you can serve your jail sentence um, in this structured sober living 24-hour surveillance um, outpatient therapy and uh, if that goes well then you're satisfied and that that's fine see if that works um, so I stayed in the sober living and this is the, like to give context to sober livings there's sober livings where people just show up and like sign in and breathalyze 
and then they're structured and there's three um very structured sober livings in la and if like you want to get sober you need to go to la if your kid is having a trouble with substance abuse los angeles county is the mecca for sobriety right now and there's three structured sober livings and i i just as a uh just by chance got into one of those three and it's like keep your shoes in line and there's consequences if they're not got to make your bed and if there's wrinkles in the sheets there's consequences for that so you make your bed everyone has chores um at some point when they trust that you can leave without that 24-hour surveillance usually around three to four or five months they make you get a part-time or full-time job you have to hit meetings you have to work the 12 steps of alcoholics anonymous there's all these things that this program uh just happened to do for me and like for me initially it was like i just don't want to go to jail so i'll do whatever to keep me out of jail and like my thought was like it's going to be easier to get a job after this if i don't have to say this time of not working was in jail it's like i could say like i was getting sober there so that that was it just it unfolded much differently than what i had imagined that would do for my life but yeah the sober living so the sober living he's talking about i'll give him a plug um is called the last house um it is the biggest blessing that ever happened to our family i would say the last house i thank them for giving me my brother back essentially um kind of like he was saying it's sort of a military setup almost like not military but it's it's kind of like a brotherhood so it's it's male only i think the ages that people range there is anywhere from 15 what to 35 40 like it's a it's a big age range uh it's just a lot of younger guys but i um i don't think that i would have my brother back without them they basically restarted your life and gave him the life skills that um we as family members were at the point where like we didn't know what to do anymore and they kind of took over for us and um you got sober Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about that what's sober life for you what does it mean to be sober uh so when i before i got sober i always had it in my mind that i was drinking too much but i didn't consider myself an alcoholic um i've been in and out of aa rooms um court you know you got to get your court slip signed since 2012 so i'm very familiar with aa and if i had to go to one a week i would usually go to two or three a week just because it was a an hour of the day that like i could stop thinking because i would just listen to people because i wanted to understand you know you hear them share and like i try to relate to it wouldn't relate take what you fit you know all this stuff so um sobriety um for me was really found because of the the last house and the behavioral modification that that gave to me i listened to one of the graduates before me that that he he satisfied a year of sobriety and trust with the house and getting a job and finding a place to live and they were like okay so now you can go do this on your own so you graduate the program and he was sharing at a meeting and one of the one of the aa um people asked what keeps you sober and um his name is quinn quinn asked it perfect perfectly he's like the it'll be okay be, uh, asked what keeps you sober aa or the last house because this person was familiar with these structured sober livings and um quinn was like the last house 
helped my um, behavioral uh, malfunction, behavioral, I forget the wording, but helped his behavior. Uh, the AA helped his spiritual malady, and then um, God keeps him sober. And like those, those three together was the perfect answer. The behavioral modification that he needed was satisfied by the structure of a sober living because it has nothing to do with just like staying sober. It like just stopping drinking. That doesn't, that's, that's technically sober, but you're, you're still nuts. Um, so you need that behavior modification of making your bed, picking up after yourself, like learning how to cook, getting a job and uh, being accountable when you screw up and like you get a year of that and like that's what was what I was missing because like I could do all of those things not consistently but I could do it enough so that it didn't get me in trouble you know I'd fool I, I had a good act I'd do it enough so that I could keep doing what I wanted but I was just doing it for that reason um, but yes yeah, so, sobriety that, that answer um, the behavioral modification he needed uh, AA is the spiritual malady um, and then God keeps you sober it doesn't have to be God it's just a higher power you're really arrogant if you don't think there's something more powerful than yourself and that's that's what I believe keeps me sober um, just sort of a, do you have advice to someone that is is going through something like this or maybe a family member who um, you know of someone that's going through mental health issues do you have any yeah the m mental health so there's there's what is it mental health one thing's like you just you talk to a professional trust the professionals get a couple opinions and um if if, if you're manic like i was there's no there's no reasoning with someone that's in that state and there's med medication that can bring slow your brain down enough so that you can then be responsive to situations and not just simply react on instinct. So that's, that's the first thing is you, you just, you have to trust somebody that understands the brain more than you do. Um, because there was no stopping me without, um, uh, I think it's called the medication called Seroquel. Without Seroquel, it wouldn't have been possible. How long did it take you to narrow down the medication regimen that you're on now? Uh, probably three years. And two and a half years. What do you do? You want to talk about what you're on right now, or what what helps you the most? What do you think is the medication that's helping you? Well, for for my bipolar, um, what what I've learned about it, and then like how it uh, plays out in my mind. Uh, it's not flip of a switch. It's never been flip of a switch. I can get in fights like that. I can sober up like that, but I can go it hot and cold just in those situations. Just for some reason, I just like that kind of confrontation, the aggressiveness. But a manic episode takes two months for me to get to. And I, the only reason I'm saying two months is because two times that's what it's led to. The first time was seven weeks of just absolute bliss and that was probably a, a month and a half that led up to that first day and then the second time um is about two and a half months that i was off medication completely and like that's how long it takes me to go manic um just sleep 
that's really it. If there was an herbal remedy, a natural remedy that could put me to sleep, that would be all that I needed. Only because of what I've learned um, about my sobriety and the usefulness of a sober mind and getting an understanding of manic because someone that's bipolar, schizophrenic, any any mental illness cannot be effectively treated if you're um, smoking pot. It can't be done. If you're drinking every day, it can't be done. You cannot get a hold of yours because those are all, those are substances um, that are helping you feel better. You're using something synthetically to fix your feelings and you can't rely on that and gain control of your mental health. You need to do it sober so that you can figure out what works and what doesn't work. And um, for me, it was it was it was sobriety uh, because I'd taken all these different medications and none, none of them worked. And I didn't like it because they weren't doing exactly what they could because there was always substances uh, mixing up with with them when I would take them. So um, for me, it was, you know, taking doctor direction and then actually applying what I could learn uh, after about a year and a half of sobriety. Yeah, I, I think the the journey for you, at least from, I, I think it took you a total of maybe a year while you were in AA, from my standpoint, like as a family member, to really like see a little bit of a change. And then you've been sober now for three years? Three years, three months, and eight days. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, can you talk a little bit about the AA community and like your... I think everyone's journey through mental health is different and I think everyone's journey through sobriety is a little different, but I, what's your perspective on AA and what your journey is, has been like with that? So I, I really value those rooms and the people that, that go to meetings and, and I mean, you can, you can hit a meeting any city most, most hours of the day, especially here in LA. Um, and it's, it's just nice to go somewhere where there's other people that have, you know, similar issues with their life and, and troubles that come up every day, each day. You know, some people go to seven meetings a week. That's their that's their routine. They like they either wake up and go to a meeting that starts their day right or they end their day at a meeting. And I understand and I respect people that enjoy that because without those people that go to those meetings and open those halls, there isn't a place for somebody that wants to learn to go to. And, and that's what that that's what LA can really do for somebody is you can hit a meeting you can meet like eight meetings a day if you really wanted to you can do that here in Los Angeles but um, for me AA was the medium that provided me the ability to work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are what taught me a lot of um the behaviors I can maintain today. AA, like I said, is the rooms that people can congregate in and share their experience, strength, and hope. But the 12 steps are for the individual to work with another individual who has worked them prior and had a um, spiritual awakening. A spiritual awakening sounds like, you know, you don't see God. That's not a thing. Your higher power can be anything. It just can't be it, it can't be you. You are not the most powerful entity on this planet. There's something else. Um, 
and it it's really powerful to go through those 12 steps with somebody that has done it um, and they just they enlighten you on certain things and activities and you know events in your life and and they they bring a different perspective but it's it's not even them bringing it. it's just they know the questions that need to be asked about those scenarios that get you to think about what what was your part in that because yeah it's his fault but like it takes two someone's at fault someone caused it someone there's always two so what was your part and that was really powerful to hear uh, my part in a lot of these things um but yeah, the the AA rooms like one of, one of there's a show called Mom, and it you know it's a TV show, so whatever kind of show. But I'd say that was a pretty pretty accurate um, show about the AA community, and that that's based in a, a female perspective. Um, but guys, you know they do the same thing. You go to meetings, you have friends, you have a sponsor, um, and that works for some people. I have the Last House, which is heavily devoted to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and what those steps can do for individuals that want to get sober. That's my sanctuary of, you know, I don't, I don't go to meetings every day. I, I, I go to the last house as, as many Fridays as I can. I hit their group. Uh, and then I go to a meeting after that I've gone to since 2016 when I got sober. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the AA community is a very a very um, peaceful place for me to go if I just want to stop. You know, I can't turn it off, but I can I can stop for that hour and listen um, to someone else. Is there anything you would have had us as family do differently through your process? I don't think you could have. There was there was there was nothing. There was no. You know, just just putting me in that that sober living was the best thing that, that nobody knew we were doing at the time. Uh, yeah. But, um, I actually want to bring Megan on real quick. So for those of you who, um, have seen, I brought Megan on a couple times. Hi, Megan. Hello. You've been here before? Yeah. Jeez, where have so I funny. been? So Megan's <laughs> been a part of our life. This is actually Joel's sister and a big part of our family. Um, I wanted to ask you a question because you and Vincent are recently dating. Yes. Um, what, are there any things that you as like a girlfriend or like as a distant family that you've experienced with him and the bipolar disease or like things that, you know, maybe a tip you could give as someone that's been, you've been a part of the process with us. And I'd like to hear a little bit from you. So I don't know necessarily if it's the bipolar or sobriety, you know, both of that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yes, I was there from the beginning. So the college, you know, I saw him in college. Yeah. And to me, it was just like, Joel, that's Joel's roommate, Vince. He's nuts. Like, yeah, he's nuts. Crazy. Like, that's it. You know, anything mm-hmm. he did, I'm like, that's Vince. I brought friends around. I'm like, there's Vince. You know, like that was, that's what it was. Yeah. Um. He's a character. Yes. Still is. Yes. That hasn't changed, which no, I love. That's what I love. Um, And then... I do remember getting the phone call of him saying that he was, um, so it was September 26, 2016. Um, he said that he was going to a sober living and would not have a phone, you know, anything like that. And then I don't know how long after that it was that I heard from him. Um, again, was very seldom, like, you know, just touch and go. And then even 
like when he got the phone back in the sober living um i could still tell that it was like no yeah like, he's still he's on one yeah still he was up on there one. and then even when he was when he talked about like going out and getting the job so he had a job at the time and we would talk on the phone and i'm like nope still you know like it was it was just like you can tell and then just one day i feel like it just switched and yeah. i was like okay things are like things are going up and i can tell and it just like it was an overwhelming experience like feeling just like yeah. okay this is it like he's good everything's under control the medication mm -hmm. is right it's going well the sobriety like everything and i like that feeling is just like i like you can't even describe it because yeah it was like this is it yeah it's interesting because you bring that up about um, when you're with somebody you love and you can just tell they're not themselves, like, it's hard to pinpoint how, like, what it is. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sure everyone's bipolar's manifestation's different. But I do think I agree with you. There was, like, a switch. Yeah. A big switch in you. And I also think that was when you really embraced um, your own journey with sobriety, um, which helped in your mental health mm -hmm. um so I, I i can uh pinpoint what that was and that was a spiritual awakening and it's like like i said i didn't see god nothing like that but it was the the meds changed um i'd gotten a job and like kind of like settled into that route um getting privileges in the house and you know reaching these mini milestones and working the steps and getting through some stuff and like it, it, all of these different elements came together on a Saturday morning and it was my alarm that went off and it was go back to like starting in 2008 when you know the college and work and party routine once I figured all that out it was you know, it was passing out and then coming to the alarm. And it was, the alarm would wake me up, but what would get me out of bed was like a head-to-toe rage. It was just a split second of rage. That that fury, that's what would get me out of bed. But in that same split second, I would think about everything I had to do that day so that I'd get everything done, I'm ready for tomorrow, and then I could drink and smoke pot and kick it and do whatever. Um... And then, you know, split second over, rage is gone, and I would roll out of bed. And it was this Saturday, um, after all these different elements came together, I don't know, I'm like six, seven, I forget how many months sober, um, the alarm went off. And I remember looking at the bunk above me, I was, t I was bottom bunk, and like I kind of like internally was like giggling. And I was like, what is going on? First time every day first time that I didn't have that rage and I was like whoa that was crazy and I just got out of bed and like there was no rage that was crazy and then Sunday alarm went off no rage and like every day since then I don't wake up with that split second of rage and I don't want to lose that and like that's the spiritual awakening that's the the mind switch of learning about this stuff that all came together that switch is what what changed um and like i still had ups and downs from then just because i you know it's like i learned the hard way but that was uh 
that's the reason right now, me internally, why I stay sober is because I don't want to wake up with that rage. Okay, so um, bipolar touches not only the person or mental health touches not only the person and their family members, but their spouses and people, extension people as well. So I want to bring on my husband, Jacob. Hello, everyone. Hello. <laughs> um, and uh, I actually wanted to hear a little bit from your perspective of your experience with uh, mental health in our family and um, your experience with bipolar. Sure. Um, I think you kind of uh, alluded to it earlier on. Uh, we had, you know, very recently started dating and this was kind of the prime of Vincent's mania. So uh, I remember just meeting the family for the first time and one of the first experiences, uh, I think it was around Christmas time, we were up at, up at your, your uh, parents' house and someone had hair extensions or something like that. And Vincent decided they were blonde and uh, Vincent is, has got dark hair and he put, put the hair extensions in. It was like running around just like, <laughs> and I was like, okay. And you know, you were like, no, that's, that's just, that's just Vince. That's, that's my brother, you know? So I think that which was kind of, <laughs> which it still is, but I think that was uh, kind of the, the beginning of it. So it was definitely a tough time because, you know, we were together and I would, you know, hear, you know, you and your mom talking like, what the hell are we, you know, what the hell can we do? And, and kind of just the, the helplessness feeling of, you know, there, like you said, there's, you know, there was no reasoning with you and, you know, trying to talk to you didn't, you know, didn't, didn't process. So yeah. I think from, you know, a family perspective, a, a spouse perspective, I mean, it was, it was, it was definitely challenging, but really all I could do was, you know, kind of be supportive and I think the thing that I'm most thankful for and I think maybe a message to anyone who's kind of going through this is just I felt like you were very supportive as a spouse watching me go through it because I do think when you're an immediate family and you love your family so much my focus was so much on trying to help Vincent and I felt like very supported by my partner uh, going through that process. And so I think that's something that I think is huge. I do think, obviously, your diagnosis affected every single person in our family. But I can tell you, like, our family is very much one that bonds together. And I think it took everyone in our family to sort of get through it and to understand it. And, you know, I think there were many times, Jacob can attest to this, like, where... Um, we just had to, you just, I feel like you just mustered down and just were very tolerant more than anything. Like you, you, you saw what manic was, but you were very understanding. We went to a breakfast one morning. I know you know which breakfast I'm talking about when we took him. And you were just, Vincent was just on one he was just talking about so much craziness I mean I don't even know what he was talking about we were and I just remember being really embarrassed because you know here we were um my husband or my now husband was meeting my brother kind of in the first couple months and Vincent was just literally crazy on one like talking about stuff that we had no idea what he was talking about and we left and I was just I didn't know what to do or say 
And you just were very, you were there for me as someone who is going through that with mental health. And I feel like that was enough for me. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it was a, a definitely a, a trying time. And, and, you know, I think this platform is awesome to continue to erase or arise arise awareness awareness yeah. provide awareness to this just because you know because of you um and your mother i mean you guys were working tirelessly and and i just think that there are a lot of you know other individuals in this situation that don't have that family support where yeah. you know it could have ended a, a lot you know a lot worse um, but i also think you know now kind of going through that and I think finally the past like year or two, like I actually feel like I really know like the real, the real you Vincent, um, you know, obviously I think that mania is always part of you, which makes you, you, but, but there, you know, the, the level you is, is still, you still have that in you, but it's, you know, you're, it's still you. And so I think ironically enough, you know, in my family, we have, you know, bipolar, um, but I think on the other side, on the depressive side, so, um, I, I mean, I was, you know, I don't really, I think I didn't His, really notice it, but yeah. So your uncle yeah, was, um, yeah. So my producer, Matthew over here, this is his brother. <laughs> so they have an uncle who is bipolar as well. Yeah. So, so my dad's brother, um, uh, had some bipolar, but it was, you know, on the depressive side where he would just be, you know, shut himself out and lay on the couch and not talk to anybody for months at a time. So I think, yeah, I, I was young um, when this was going on, so I didn't really realize, but that was kind of the only bipolar that I had ever been directly exposed to. And, you know, Vincent and Mania is kind of the complete opposite of that. So uh, it's interesting that there are, you know, two different sides of it and some people have, have both. And yeah. Um, I feel like it, and moving forward, when Jacob and I have kids, we're just going to be very in tune with that. Our kids are going to be so bipolar. Our kids are so definitely going to be so nuts. The kids, it's going to be great. <laughs> we have bipolar on both sides of the family. And it does. It is a genetic thing. So I do think that makes us much more. So um, let, I want to I touch on that with, with kids and whatnot. Because I've done ample research, um, you know, both on bipolar and addiction. And a lot of things um, are genetic or hereditary. Uh, and then it's behaviors that are learned. Uh, there's a lot of taboo with addiction, but behaviors classify as addiction. There's a, there's like 150 noted addictions that humans have. Alcohol and drugs, that's just two of them. Yeah. Um, gambling, eating, gaming, porn, nicotine, codependency. Um, the list is, is there's, there's 150 of them. And sex, what, shopping, risky yeah, behavior. What that means is the same 12 steps that I noted that I went through with an alcoholic were originated uh, in the 30s um, as the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But each one of these noted addictions, they have groups. There's gaming anonymous, there's nicotine anonymous, there's codependency anonymous. And all of these groups use the platform of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, but they don't call it that 12 steps of codependency anonymous, but it's the same generic platform to gain power over your weakness. So um, that's a great resource 
to provide people. Yeah, it's, it's, free. A, it's like whatever you think, it's you know, free. or like you you probably don't think it, but your family thinks it, so they're the ones that can try to try to suggest this. My definition from all these different sources comes down to every baby that has ever been born or will ever be born is born with a predisposition to have an addictive personality. The addiction is defined by the parenting. What's okay, what's not okay. Yes, there are hereditary urges towards certain things, but ultimately an addiction is learned. I wasn't born addicted to getting drunk. I wasn't born addicted um, to getting high. That's not what it was. I Every baby, the reason they cry is because they want to be happier than they are right now. And we never grow out of that. Every human being, human instinct defines us. We want to be happier than we are right now. What we do daily, weekly, monthly, yearly to make sure that we can be as happy as possible. That's what we're addicted to. So before we wrap up on that, um, the whole thing behind that, I do feel like you're talking about two different things and I kind of want to explain that. One is addiction, and that's one thing that you're battling. The other part is mental health. And the mental health part is, you know, just more of physical chemical imbalance versus the addiction and the behaviors is what you ultimately modified to help your life. And so I think there that's kind of a two-part, and maybe to understand that, that, that there's two really big aspects to this. So... Um, with that, first of all, thank you everyone for being here. Love you all. This is a long episode. Super stoked to be here. Um, literally. Do you have any resources, a book, Netflix, a place that you want to, uh, provide our, uh, listeners as a resource or something that you feel like would be valuable to someone? For somebody, um, that's battling an addiction of any form, um, the reason that you're using that substance is you're filling a void and what you need to do first first thing if you actually want to try to gain this is get an understanding of what self-esteem is because you have no self-esteem and you need to accept that you have no self-esteem so just that's the first step is understanding what self-esteem is and then if you want to go further there's there's endless phone numbers websites I mean I learned so much um, from searching the internet on both bipolar and um, addiction. But ultimately, you need to find somebody that has accepted this is an issue in their life and has come over the hill. You need somebody like that in your life to help you with that. So th- that's my suggestion is, is understand that it's an issue for you and and really self-esteem is is lacking and like you need to understand that but it's find someone that you know a support group so if you're worried about a family member or a friend loved one someone that hasn't yet accepted what how you see them um, there's a group for that uh, I would say you just need to look look through the internet um, if it's addiction and you can you can give the last house a call because that's what they specialize in um if there's anything else behaviorals behavioral modifications that that you're trying to do there's a group for that and you just have to find that group i would suggest going to the meeting um talking to the people there and asking their advice because i don't know anything about codependency but if that's an issue in your life or someone in your life 
go to one of those meetings and talk to those people because they're the ones that have lived through it and, you know, climb that hill of that specific type of addiction. Um, How do you find an AA meeting? Is there a way to find? AA.org. Okay. AA.org. If you are interested in the Lost Houses, um, I'm actually hoping to bring them on to talk about um, the development of their program and talk a little bit more about that. So, um, because I'm eternally grateful to them. And it, I don't know. It was just a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. That was awesome. Happy to be here. All right. So as we are done today, I just wanted to take a minute and thank you very much, Vincent, for coming on and being so open about your bipolar life. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm super happy to be here. And I hope um, my experience learning the hard way can help somebody learn. Yeah. Yeah, if it needs family. to be the hard way, it must be that. But I, I hope I'm glad to be here. If someone wanted to uh, follow you on your social, where can they find you? At minivinny41, M-I-N-I-V-I-N-I, 41. Uh, you can see the controlled, learned, sober craziness. <laughs> yeah, you're crazy. <laughs> That's pretty much what I do. It is. Uh, my brother is actually, uh, he runs our family ranch, and you're also in construction as well. Yeah, we frame houses and apartments, and then I grow lemons, and I'm trying to figure out how to own the world. Yeah. So, <laughs> in the closing, thank you so much, you guys, for listening. I truly value your time and look forward to bringing you more selfie shows. In order to support the show, please head over to rate and review the show. Let me know what you think. I really want to hear from you. Please be sure to follow us on Insta at C E L L F I E podcast. Make sure to hit that subscribe button. You can find all of our episodes on www.tipsfromtory.com. And be sure to check out those show notes below Uh, there's a lot of information down there about our guests and sponsors and thank you so much for listening catch you guys next time